This morning's reading comes from Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals. There will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Let's go before the Lord and ask him for his help. Father God, this morning we believe the words in the Old Testament that your son Jesus affirmed when he was being tempted by the devil that man does not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes forth from your mouth. 
So, Father, we pray and we ask and we beg that you would give us life from your word today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. There are different types of announcements in our world today. I wonder if you've ever been sitting around the kitchen table eating dinner when all of a sudden you hear a siren of a fire truck announcing its presence driving to help a family in need. Or maybe you were sitting on the sofa watching your favorite TV show or sports teams where all of a sudden you hear a noise of a weather alert, warning, or watch announcing an incoming storm. Or maybe you've been in a meeting or with some friends where all of a sudden, one by one, everyone's cell phone makes the all too familiar sound of an amber alert announcing that there's a kid in need. Announcements are given through a variety of mediums for a variety of purposes. And as we think about our summer series going through the text in the book of Isaiah, we realize that although the medium has been the same, the prophet has been speaking on behalf of God, the messages have come from a variety. We have seen messages announcing judgment. We have seen messages announcing, describing God and his holiness. We have seen several weeks ago when one of our missionaries was here preaching out of Isaiah 9, a birth announcement that a son would be born and a child would be given. And this morning in this text in Isaiah chapter 11, we get to a kingly announcement. This announcement from Isaiah is that a king would come who would be different from the kings that the prophet Isaiah had been speaking to or about. This king would come into the world to bring justice that results in peace that would display the faithfulness of God. This king described in Isaiah chapter 11 is a king that is sent by God who would bring justice that results in peace, that would display the faithfulness of God. And we begin this morning in in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1, and we see in this first section verses 1 to 5 that Jesus is the king of justice. Jesus is the king of justice. Now, we don't know that his name is Jesus quite yet, but we can take some clues from earlier in the book, from different sermons that we've had this summer through the book of Isaiah to make this connection. We saw several weeks ago in chapter 7 the prophecy that the virgin shall shall conceive a son and his name shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we saw how the gospel writer Matthew connected that to Jesus' birth. Or as I mentioned several weeks ago in chapter 9, we saw a birth announcement that unto us a child is born and to us a son is given. And we get to the beginning here of chapter 11 and we see this announcement that a king is coming and it comes in a strange description. Look down with me at verse 1. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And at a first reading of this text, we're thinking, what is Isaiah talking about? Why is he describing a a root with a stump and a shoot? But it's a good reminder for us this morning that when the prophet prophesied these words, he didn't give the chapter divisions. They were added much later. And we must read the Bible in context. So if we look at the verse right before this, the last verse in chapter 10, we see that God's judgment is described as an axe that is bringing judgment on the people. 
Isaiah chapter 10 verse 34 says, He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. After God's judgment came through, God decided to stay true to his word. He would not destroy his people, but he would prune them. Not a small prune out on the outside, but he would cut them down to the, to the stump. It would look as if all hope was lost. But again, instead of destroying his people, he pruned them. Now, to be honest, I had the perfect sermon illustration for this morning. Several years ago, long before I knew I was preaching this text, my wife Jenna and I have been in a three-year argument, or to be generous, we might call it a conversation, on whether or not to cut down a tree in our front yard. After several years, I decided this summer it was okay. I would, I would let her go forth, and someone generously from the congregation came and cut down this tree. Before I knew I was preaching this text about a stump and a shoot, I walked in my front yard and I saw life was coming up out of this stump. What Isaiah was talking about here actually takes place. I thought I would take a picture of it and I'd show it to you this morning. But yet again, I miscommunicated with my wife and she told me she's been weed whacking it every single week. <laughs> so I don't have a picture of the stump and the shoot coming out. But I can tell you, I read this week in an article that if you want to grow a tree from a stump, the first step is patience. And when the prophet Isaiah said that a shoot was going to come up out of this stump, it was not saying that immediately a king would show up on the scene, but in the future, God's king was going to come. And God's king was going to bring justice a clear reading of this text in verse 2, we see a picture of the Trinity. We see that God's king, his son, was going to come. And look down with me in verse 2. It says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That's the Holy Spirit. And at the very end of verse 2, it says, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, God the Father. This king whom God was sending into the world was not going to be like the other kings, that we saw earlier in the book of Isaiah. Kings like King Ahaz or others who might have showed some promise at time, but eventually elevated their plans over top of God's plan and led his people into sin. No, this king that God would send who would bring justice into the world, look with me at the end of verse one. It says, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. In other words, this king that God was sending into the world, this king would bring life. That life would come as a result of this king. And the description here we see in verses 1 to 5, as this king comes with justice, we see in verse 3 that he doesn't judge as the eyes see. He doesn't hear as the, as the ears hear. But righteousness would be at this king's core. Talk about a, different, a difference from the other kings we have seen throughout this book. And because righteousness would be at this king's core, he had to take sin seriously. The very end of verse 4, the prophet says very clearly that with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. We're reminded yet again in this book that God takes sin seriously. 
You and I can sin and we can attempt to hide. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden when they ate the fruit, when they put their plans above God's commands, and they hid from God, forgetting that God was omniscient or all-knowing. You and I can sin and we can brush it off as if it doesn't really matter. Maybe the sins that we're considering are socially acceptable. Maybe they're sins that we try to justify in our mind. For even if I, if I break the law here and, 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 and lie about my, my resume, I'll get this job and I'll have more money to give to the church. Or maybe if I, if I do this sin, you know, everyone does it. It's okay, I'll do it anyways. But we're reminded in this text that God takes sin seriously. One thing, you and, one thing you and I cannot do is we cannot conquer this sin on our own. We can try to conquer sin on our own. We can put all of our strength into conquering sin on our own. But we realize that it's like we're on a hamster wheel, putting much effort forward and getting nowhere in advance. But this king who is coming is doing the exact thing that we need. We realize that our sin on the inside is the problem and we need someone from the outside to come fix what's wrong on the inside. And this king is a king of justice who would come in and take our sin seriously. However, let us not get too far ahead of ourselves. We see in these next verses in Isaiah chapter 11, verses six to nine, the result of this king coming to earth that peace will reign. We see in verses six to nine, the result of this king that God will send, he will bring justice and peace will reign on the earth. Now we've seen again and again this summer throughout the book of Isaiah that sin causes divisions, right? Sin causes vertical divisions when we sin because we've learned in Isaiah six that God is a holy God. When we sin, it causes a vertical division between us and God. But we've also seen in the book of Isaiah this summer that sin causes horizontal division. That when we sin, it puts divisions between groups of people and other groups of people, or between individuals and other individuals. But when this king comes, whom God is announcing in this chapter, a result of him coming will be peace. And I want to read these verses again in chapter 11, verses 6 to 9. And I, as I read them, I want you to imagine what is being described here. This description is wild. Look with me at verses 6 to 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea." And we see here in these few verses, verses six to nine, that as Jesus, the coming king, takes his place on the earth, the result will be peace, not only localized, but over the whole earth. Now, I've heard verses like this, descriptions of what will come in the future, as people trying to justify that there will be animals in heaven one day. 
And I would caution anyone about using verses in the Bible to prove a point that they're not there to prove. But as one commentator described, the future kingdom is described as something similar to paradise with peace and security. Even the removal of the original curse of the relationship between man and animals. Natural enemies in the animal kingdom will live together, feed together, play together, but the strong or poisonous beast will not harm anyone. I mean, look at the description we see of peace here. We see a wolf spending time with a lamb. We see a leopard spending time with a goat. We see children playing with cobras. I mean, this isn't our experience the last time you walked into a zoo, right? You walk in, you pay, you get into the zoo, you hope you get through quick enough that your children don't want anything at the gift shop. You walk ahead, you find the reptile building, and you walk in, and what do you find? You find glass in between where the snakes are and where your children go. Even if they walk up to that glass and bang on the glass and lick the glass, there is a division between them and the snakes. But the description we see here is that what is coming is something that's not normal. When God's king is sent, the prophet Isaiah predicts a peace that will reign over all the earth. And let's not miss an interesting connection here at the end of verse 9. As God's king is sent into the world which results in peace, at the same time, the prophet Isaiah says in the second half of verse 9, that all the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We see a connection here. As the knowledge of the Lord grows, so does the result of God's peace. And this is very different from what we are taught today. So much in our culture is about behavior modification. If we can get people to act a different way, then they might get along. But let's not, let's not miss the point here. Nowhere in these four verses, verses 6 to 9, do we see mention of a dog trainer or a zoologist or a park ranger. The reason that there is peace proclaimed among these animals and people is not first and foremost because of a change of action, but because of a change in authority. God's king will bring justice that results in peace. And I think it's a good time for us to pause and to ask the question, is there peace in your life? And I wonder if we've ever considered the connection between a growth in the knowledge of God and a growth of peace in your life. This is why the spiritual disciplines are so, so important. We don't read the Bible and pray and gather and give just to check boxes to feel good about ourselves. No, we do this so that we can grow in intimacy with God. And one of the results of intimacy with God that we see right here in this passage is a result of peace in our lives. 
Later in the Bible, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul affirms this when he wrote to the, to the church in Philippi. Many of us are familiar with these verses, not to be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do we see this connection here? As there is growth in intimacy with God, there is a result of peace in our lives. These are two things that run parallel to each other. As one grows, the other one should grow as well. So it's always a healthy question to ask, especially as we're continuing here through Isaiah, to say, is the peace of God in your life? And if the answer is no, then maybe today is the right time to submit to the king who brings justice that will result in peace. But as we continue through this, we arrive at the last section of verses, verses 10 to 16, where we see the evidence of the faithfulness of God. These last seven verses, verses 10 to 16, we see evidence of the faithfulness of God. Now, as we look at this, we see God's faithfulness displayed over and over again. But before we move on, we better make sure we're all on the same page knowing what we mean by God's faithfulness. Faithfulness is when we look back and we realize and we remember that God is true to his word, that he always keeps his promises, and that he acts accordingly. And his faithfulness is on display through this coming king. Throughout the summer, as we've been going through these beginning chapters in the book of Isaiah, we have seen again and again God promise that he would preserve a remnant, that he would preserve a group of people who even though he judged sin, he would not destroy them, but he would keep them. And throughout the summer, we have heard this again and again, but not up until now in chapter 11 have we seen how he would do this. And we see this king that would display the faithfulness of God described in verses 10 to 16. We see three different groups of people described here. First, the, the king who is coming, Jesus who has come, he is described as a signal. Both in verse 10, it says, In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. And then again in verse 12, we see, he will raise a signal for the nations. So the first group of people we see is the nations who this coming king will be a signal for. Some of your Bibles might use the word banner. Now this would have been perplexing to those who heard Isaiah say this. What do you mean God's coming king is going to be for the nations? I thought he was all about his people. But when we come to something confusing in the Bible, one of the best Bible study tactics is to let the Bible interpret itself. So often, I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible and I get to something confusing, I go to other sources to try to figure out what the Bible means rather than letting different sections of the Bible interpret it for me. 
And so here, as we see God's faithfulness on display, that this coming king would be a signal for the nations, the New Testament helps us understand this. Think with me for a second about the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Some of Jesus' most important words, what did he say? Go into all the world and make disciples. I just imagine that those who heard those words come out of Jesus' mouth, we're thinking back to what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 11. Or the apostle Paul in Romans 15, when he was explaining why he was going to not stay with the Jews, but go present the gospel to the Gentiles, he used this exact section to prove why he was going to do this. But God's faithfulness isn't only on display for, his, for the nations, it's also on display for his people. Look down for me in verse 13. Ephraim is another word for, for Israel. And throughout the Old Testament, Israel and Judah did not get along. And look with me at what verse 13 says. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. Why is this happening? Why are God's people getting along all of a sudden? Because when God's king is sent into the world, a result will be justice and peace that display the faithfulness of God. When God's king is on his throne, there will be unity among his people. But the third group of people we see here in this last section come in verse 14. We see mentions of names that a lot of them are somewhat difficult to say. The Philistines, or the Edomites, or the Moabites, or the Ammonites. And if we read them and think about how they fit into the Bible as a whole, these are historical enemies of the people of God. These are people who throughout the Bible are known as God's enemy. And when we read verse 14, we see that, he, that they shall swoop down on them. Or it says, together they shall plunder these people. And we realize that this one verse helps us unlock chapter 11. Because God's king would bring justice, and because a result of God's king would be peace, then God must judge and punish those who would live in sin. And that's exactly what he does in verse 14. Those who are the historical enemies of God's people, at the beginning of 15 it says, and the Lord will utterly destroy. But as this chapter ends, and as Isaiah wraps up this thought before he gets to chapter 12, we see an interesting mention that I don't want us to miss. The very last verse says this, and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Now this is the second time he mentioned this. We skipped over it the first time, but look in verse 11. It says, in that day, the, king, the day that the king will come, it says, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. What is Isaiah talking about here? Well, he is modeling well for us 
what it means to look back on the faithfulness of God and remember what God has done in the past, all while looking ahead and walking forward in faith at the same exact time. God's people were listening to Isaiah say this, and they were being reminded that if God was faithful to his people when they were slaves in Egypt, that God would be faithful to them today. Now it was Jewish tradition that when God's people came out of Egypt, when they were under slavery and you know the different plagues that God sent and, and Pharaoh let his people go, well they, they went for a while until they got to the Red Sea and they found themselves at a hard place. The Red Sea was in front of them and the Egyptians were coming behind them. And it's Jewish tradition that when God's people got to the Red Sea, that they got in the water and they started to walk. And it wasn't until the water got up to their nostrils that God parted the Red Sea in front of them and let them walk through on dry ground. One pastor and author, Matt Smethurst, he reminds us that now although that's an extra biblical reading, he says it's an utterly biblical picture of faith. We don't wait to see if God will part the waters and then step out in faith. No, faith is stepping out even when it looks like God has forgotten his promise, yet we step out anyways. Just as God was faithful in the past, so God will be faithful in the future. Now before you're, we're done here this morning, put yourself there for a second. Being someone who hears these words coming straight out of the lips of Isaiah, they still might have had fear about their enemies. Life was still pretty uncertain. Yet Isaiah reminds them that if God was faithful to his people when they were slaves in Egypt, he would be faithful to them today because this king would display the faithfulness of God. This causes us to remember what's one of the most central verses to this section of Isaiah, chapters 1 to 11. And it came several weeks ago in chapter 7, when the prophet said in Isaiah 7 verse 9, if you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. This didn't mean that God all of a sudden might change their circumstance. Sure, God might have changed their circumstance, but he didn't always do it right then. But we are called to trust God in the middle of our circumstances, looking back at the faithfulness of God, all while walking ahead in faith. It reminds me of what Charles Spurgeon said when he said, God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. God was faithful to his people when the Red Sea was in front of them. God was faithful to his people in Isaiah when they were surrounded by their enemies. And the prophet reminds them and us that we must walk ahead in faith. And as a new season starts for us here in Northeast Ohio, I know with the fair this week, it's kind of the unofficial end of summer and beginning of the fall season. School is starting, rhythms change, trajectories are different. 
And I'm not sure exactly what circumstance you find yourself in this morning. Some of you are in horrific circumstances, barely breathing and barely hanging to hold on. Others of us are in joyous circumstances, enjoying the life that God has given of us. Others are just going through the mundane, trying to see what God might have ahead. I don't know what circumstance you find yourself in. Only you know that. But this is what I know this morning, that God did send his king, and he did bring justice that resulted in peace, that displayed the faithfulness of God. Jesus came on this earth, and he conquered sin, and he conquered death, and he will come again. So no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, as we wait for the second coming of this king, in the meantime, we are called to live by faith. And the question we must consider this morning is how will we respond? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these reminders in this chapter out of the book of Isaiah. And Father, we thank you for being faithful to your word that you did send a king and that his name is Jesus. Father, I pray that this morning as we sing a couple more songs and consider the truth of who Jesus is, I pray that you would give us a bigger view of who you are. And God, I pray that you would convict the hearts of those who are yet to know you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.